One of the most famous and well-known stories in all the Bible is the story of the little shepherd boy named David who takes down the mighty giant named Goliath. That story is so well-loved and so well-hearsed and, and so often repeated that it's even become a cliche for any event where the underdog is able to topple the unbeatable opposition in front of them. How many, how many football games have you watched where the announcers cast the game as a David versus Goliath story, right? But the real story of what happened between David and Goliath is probably not quite as sanitized as those coloring pictures you colored in Sunday school. The story of David and Goliath occurred around 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And during that time period, there was almost a constant cold war between the nation of Israel and their neighboring nation of Philistia, the land of the Philistines. And as often as not, the cold war would get very, very hot very, very quickly. And the Philistines would regularly invade the nation of Israel. They would conquer them. They would take their crops. They would enslave them. They would go so far at times even to ban um, the work of a blacksmith so that people couldn't make farming implements lest they turn those farming implements into weapons. And every now and then the Israelites would fight back and they would repel the Philistines and reclaim their territory and experience delivery. And often they would give as good as they got. And it was always, always back and forth. In fact, it was the threat of the Philistines that led the nation of Israel to appoint their first king, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul was the monarch of Israel during the story of David and Goliath, when the war and the rivalry between the Philistines and the Israelites was particularly fierce and especially tense. The Philistines invade again. And they come to conquer the nation of Israel. And the armies of Israel square off against the armies of Philistia. But this time they choose to do things a little bit differently. Instead of just haphazardly running together and everybody killing everybody else, they decide to engage in the ancient practice of combat by champion. The idea being that each army selects their biggest, strongest, ugliest, meanest, hairiest guy. And those two guys go out and fight representing their armies. And whichever guy comes out on top, then that army wins. It's not a terrible idea, is it? Just put Biden and Putin in a cage match and... Okay, maybe that's not the best idea, but the idea in general is not without its merits, okay? Well, the Philistines had a particularly gnarly champion by the name of Goliath. The Bible tells us that Goliath was a giant. And the Bible identifies Goliath's height as between being 9 foot 9 and 9 foot 10 inches tall. That's tall. That's freakishly tall. That's beyond Corey tall. That's weird, <laughs> scary tall. And I know as modern people, we read that and we think, well, giants, come on. There couldn't really be people that tall. Well, actually... The tallest man in recorded modern history was a man by the name of Robert Wadlow who died in 1940, and he was 8 foot 11 inches tall. You can find photographs of that guy. Google him. It's worth a Google. So it's not unreasonable. But Goliath was not a worthy champion because he was such a great soldier, even though he probably was. But he was a great champion because of the large shadow that he cast. Anybody and everybody would have looked up at Goliath and they would have been paralyzed by fear. This was a man that was unconquerable. 
This was a man that was unbeatable. This was a man who was a PR stunt. This was a man who was a terrorist tactic, whose very presence on the battlefield inspired fear in his enemies. And the Philistines were right. It worked. Because the Israelites could not find a champion to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. None of their best generals would do it. None of their bravest soldiers would do it. Even the mighty King Saul, who was himself head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel, he wouldn't go do it. And for 40 days, Goliath mocked the armies of Israel. For the better part of six weeks, the first thing that the Israelite soldiers heard when they got out of their tents in the morning was Goliath mocking them and their cowardice and mocking their God and claiming that their God had no power over him and his army. The last thing that they heard every night when they went to bed was the same spiel again of the weakness of their armies and the weakness of their God. Day after day after day after day, he was injecting a lethal dose of fear into the Israelites. Meanwhile, in Bethlehem, David the shepherd boy is just too young to join the army. He doesn't meet the age to register for selective service. But his brothers are in the army. And David's father, Jesse, wants to supply them with provisions. And so he sends David with some horses and some cheese and some fruit and some bread and some other things uh, to make sure his brothers have enough to eat. David is basically an Iron Age pizza delivery boy. And David goes to his brothers at the front lines. He delivers his groceries. The DoorDash is completed. And he hears Goliath mocking his God. And mocking his people. And David, too young to know any better, says somebody ought to do something about this. Somebody needs to stand up to him. There are no takers. So David says, well, I'll do it with the Lord's help. David gets permission from King Saul to go be squashed by the giant giant Goliath. Before he goes to face off Goliath, he goes down to the brook down to a creek, and he gets five smooth stones to put in his shepherd's sling. And he goes to face the giant Goliath. And everybody knows how the story ends. Now, I know you know how the story ends, but everybody there thought they knew how the story ended. There's no way that David could ever conquer Goliath. This little shepherd boy, in fact, that's what Goliath says to him. He says, what am I looking down at? What am I that they've sent this puny little runt to come fight against me? They exchange words, and David says that, look, the battle's the Lord's. He's going to give you over into my hand, just as God was faithful. When the bear came against my sheep, and my God delivered me out of the hand of the bear, God will deliver me out of your hand, too. And just as my God delivered me out of the hand of the lion that came to attack my sheep, God will deliver me out of your hand as you attack his people. So the Bible says that David loaded up his slingshot, and it wasn't the dentist, the menace kind, it was a slingshot that they would spin at their side or over their head but David loads up he lets fly he prays and sprays and like the country preacher said that as soon as that rock left his slingshot the good holy ghost got on that rock saddled it (laughs) and rode it right into the only vulnerable spot on Goliath's body that stone sunk into his forehead and that was the last thing to ever enter his mind And the Bible says that Goliath falls down. And then David, the little shepherd boy, goes over to Goliath's body. And this is where it gets really, really grisly. Goes over to Goliath's body. He takes Goliath's sword that was probably as big as he was. Then decapitates Goliath. 
and holds his head up for both armies to see. David was a killer. And he was right to do it. Fast forward several decades in David's life, and David faces a giant that he can't defeat. A giant of his own desire. A giant of his own appetite. And he looks out over his palace walls, and he sees a young lady by the name of Bathsheba, ironically taking a bath. The shepherd king becomes a peeping Tom. He lusts after this woman. He takes her to have an affair. And then the news comes to him sometime later that she's pregnant with his child. And David, in a hurry to cover it all up, conspires that he is going to have her husband, one of his soldiers on the front lines, killed. And David sends the orders to his general Joab, and he says, Joab, I want you to call a charge on this certain day of battle and give everybody a secret password that they know when they hear it, they should retreat, except for Uriah, except for my mistress's wife. And sure enough, that's what happened. The order's given to charge, everybody rushes forward, then the secret order to retreat is given, and Uriah dies. David was a killer, and he was wrong to do it. What is the difference between killing Goliath and killing Uriah? That's what we're going to look at today as we return to the Ten Commandments. As we look at the Sixth Commandment that says very simply, Thou shalt not kill. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for our hearts and what does it mean for our world? Let's read the Ten Commandments together this morning, beginning in Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. Scripture says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. There's been a lot of controversy over the past few decades in American political discourse over the propriety of placing the Ten Commandments in courtrooms or perhaps on courthouse squares. And that was, of course, most famously adjudicated here in Alabama with um, Judge Roy Moore. And some people have said, well, and they're correct, they say, well, uh, 
just from a social perspective and a historical perspective, the Ten Commandments form the foundation for the basis of American law and American justice. And so they deserve a respected and, and, and revered place in our legal proceedings. But then other people have said, now wait a minute, we are Americans. And every American has the right to worship how they see fit. It's right there in the first, com- first, first commandment, the First Amendment. What are the two? The first commit, the first. Y'all pray. Somebody needs to pray. The First Amendment says that Congress is not going to establish any sort of law preferring one religion or another. Surely we have separation of church and state, and maybe the Ten Commandments in a courthouse would infringe upon people's rights. And certainly we do understand that not every American is going to honor the Sabbath. I mean, not every Christian honors the Sabbath. Not every American is going to worship the God of the Bible. We, we know that. The truth is, If we were to go around hanging the Ten Commandments up in all the courthouses of America, then those Ten Commandments would condemn everybody in the courtroom as guilty. Because they tell us that our hearts have to be tuned to worship God. Our lives have to be clear of any sort of blasphemy. We should reverence Him and we should love one another. We cannot kill, we cannot steal, we cannot commit adultery. And if none of those get us, the last one sure does. Because the judge, the jury, the guilty party, the DA, and the bailiff, the one thing they all have in common is we're all covetous. The commandments condemn all of us as sinners. But surely the one thing we can agree on, if we can't agree about anything else the Bible teaches, everybody would agree that this commandment is a good commandment, right? You shall not kill. That's a good thing. I want you to believe that. I want you to know that. I want you to understand. And I trust you do understand that killing is bad. It's hard to have any kind of society if we don't believe that, right? Surely, this is, surely, listen, y'all, honestly, can't I just get up here and say, look, the Bible says thou shalt not kill, don't kill one another, let's pray and go home. (laughs) Like, what else is there to say? But, think about this with me. A man kills another man in the heat of passion, or for some premeditated reason. A jury convicts him, and he goes to death row, where other men kill him. One man is a criminal condemned to die, and others are serving justice. Then, an American soldier maybe kills others in battle, and we celebrate him as a hero. How do we understand what it means that God does not want us to kill? Let's break this apart in two ways this morning. First, let's talk about the prohibition in this command. Thou shalt not kill. Let's be dismissed. It seems to be pretty straightforward. But if you were paying attention when I read the text this morning, you may have noticed that in the English Standard Version of the Bible that I'm, that I'm reading from, the Bible translation that I read and that I preach from, it's different from what you may have memorized or heard in the King James. The King James Version says, thou shalt not kill. The English Standard Version says, you shall not murder. Do you agree that there's a difference between killing and murdering? Well, there is. There is a difference. Even in Hebrew, the Hebrews had like eight different words in the Old Testament for killing. They were just killing people all the time. They had just a wealth of vocabulary for it. And the particular word here is really a word that is more about murder. We understand that people can take another human life totally by accident. I've known people that's occurred to them. That's a tragedy, but it does happen. But this is a word that is talking about intentionally and unjustly taking another human being's life or being reckless in a way that would cause another person's life to be in jeopardy. And what God is doing in this passage of Scripture is not only forbidding the taking of human life in context of murder, 
But God is, all throughout his commandments, he is emphasizing the value and the dignity of human life, which is the basis for this command. This is a theological statement as much as it is a social prohibition. Yes, it is a crime to murder. But it is a sin before it is a crime. It is a sin when we do not value life that produces murder. The people of Israel would have probably understood this more thoughtfully and more carefully than we do because they very much understood the importance of the story of Genesis chapter 1 where God creates Adam and Eve. And when God creates Adam and Eve, He says He's going to create man in His image. They believed and understood that human beings were made uniquely and specially by God as image bearers of God. That every human being was to some degree a reflection of the God who made him or her. And that every human had value. Every human life had purpose. Every human life had dignity. Every human life had a special and a sacred quality. And it was not right for human beings to take the life of other human beings made in the image of God. When, when Noah gets off the ark in Genesis chapter number 9, and he steps into the mud that day and God speaks to him, he reaffirms much of what he had said to Adam and Eve, but in Genesis chapter 9, you find these words, God blesses Noah and his sons. You see God's heart to bless them, right? Be fruitful and multiply. What is that? What, that command to be fruitful and multiply, that is a command to life, right? Be fruitful. We're not getting the biology of it. Just, just That's a command to life. Create life. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be put upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, in your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, thank God. And I gave you the green plants. I give you everything. God gives everything. Isn't that incredible? But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast I will require, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Again, you shall be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In other words, God is a fan of human life. God is a fan of human flourishing. Y'all, it was all his idea. There is no human life without God desiring this and designing this. And the commandments that we should not kill or that we should not murder, however we might translate it, they are to be built upon our understanding of the value of human life. That every single human life matters. That every single human life has dignity. Every single human life has value. So that we would say it does not matter if the human life is a black life, a white life, a Hispanic life, a green life, a brown life, an Asian life, a Muslim life, a Christian life, a gay life, a straight life, a religious life, an atheistic life, a trans life, or whatever I may have left out. They all matter, and they all deserve to be treated with kindness and respect and integrity and generosity because they were all created in the image of God. Now, if we believe that, and you should believe that, if you believe the Bible, you need to believe that, that has implications for how we live. It has implications for how we think about some of the most controversial social issues of our day. If I really believe that all human life matters, then it is my responsibility as a Christian to pray for, to work for, to do, vote for, do every single thing that I can to hurry the absolute abolition of abortion. Because a bo abortion is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Abortion is murder. I'm going to say it as clearly as I can. Abortion is murder. It is a failure by a mother 
a failure by a doctor and a failure by a culture to believe that human life matters. It also means that I should believe in and support the death penalty. God says that in Genesis chapter number 9. He says that if a human life is taken by another life, then that person deserves to die because the state has the power to enact justice. It also means that I should condemn vocally every form of racism that I come across because the Bible says that we are all made of one blood. Look, there were what? Eight people that got off the ark? And every one of us came from them. You can hate on people that look different from you if you want to, but they're still your cousins. <laughs> That's your family. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, that we all have one blood. We should be a people who care well for the elderly. We should vocally oppose any sort of movement that promotes euthanasia. Assisted suicide or the right to die. It also means that we should be good stewards of our own lives. Here's what I mean. When the Lord tells me that I should not kill, that means, yes, I should not kill you. You should be glad for that. I mean, I hadn't thought about it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Let me move on. It also means you can't kill me. Would have expected a few more. It's okay. But it also means I can't kill myself. It also means I recognize that my life is a gift. And that I do things to uh, live the best quality of life that I'm capable of. Because my life is a gift. I don't make reckless decisions if I'm a teenager. I do try and avail myself to the medical help that maybe will be good for me if I need that. Because it's not just about taking life, but it's about living life. And God wants you to live your life as a gift from Him. Now, the difficulty in all this is that we live in a culture that absolutely does not believe life is a gift from God. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 6 says, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. It's the Lord's business when we come into this world and the Lord's business when we leave this world. And the reason that killing is wrong is because killing is an attempt to sit in judgment over God and to say, I can decide when somebody else leaves this world. It's an attempt to place ourselves in God's station. And I fear that our culture has done that so that we have removed God and our created essence as beings made in the image of God from any conversation about why human life matters. And so here is the schizophrenic moment that we live in. You need to understand this. This is so important. We live in a schizophrenic moment where we are constantly seeing people tie any number of political issues to human rights. People march in the streets for human rights. This thing is about human rights. This issue is a human rights issue. This thing is a human rights issue. But let me ask you sincerely, is there anything in nature that would lead you to believe that human beings have rights beyond other animals? I mean, I know we're at the top of the food chain. But you go swim with the great white sharks off the coast of Mexico without a cage and see how much they care about your human rights. They care about lunch. And you see that all through nature, right? It's violent, dangerous, 
cruel. And we're told today that really human beings are no different from that. That we are little more than animals who can develop speech, maybe better social hierarchies and opposable thumbs. But we're still animals. And our natural impulses can't be denied because we're animals. We didn't come from anywhere. We're not going anywhere. And it doesn't matter. But human beings have rights. And so politically, just as a for instance, right now I'm being told certain ways I should think about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia or the conflict between Palestine and Israel. But what does that matter? Because really what you have is just this clump of cells that has the name Vladimir Putin. And just the chemicals in his brain have fired in such a way that he wants to claim territory and conquer other peoples. And he's able to manipulate more clumps of cells called the Russian peoples to go invade these other clumps of cells and destroy them called the Ukrainians. But we're all here by accident. We didn't come from anything. We're not going anywhere. In a hundred years, none of it's going to matter. And then a thousand years or a million years, there's going to be this giant solar flare and the whole universe is going to blow up and never even know we were here. So what does it matter? And I say that to you to say that we see countless ways in our society where we try to live as if, human, as if human beings only had the dignity we ascribe to them. That's what racism is. A person has the dignity that I give them. It's what abortion is. They have the dignity that I give them. Their life matters because I believe it matters or because the state believes it matters. Then their life matters when I consent to the value in their human life. We try to live that way, and yet at the other hand, we also try to live as if all lives really do have value and importance. And I believe all lives do have value and importance because I believe the Bible because I believe God made human beings. And what you're seeing in our culture at this moment, and I think this is maybe one of the most important things that I could tell you to help you understand what time it is in our culture at this moment, is you are seeing the fruit of Proverbs chapter 8 and verse number 36. Get this verse. Memorize this verse. Proverbs 8.36 says, But he who fails to find me, this is wisdom speaking, he who fails to find wisdom injures himself. All who hate wisdom love death. Our culture has rejected the word of God. Our culture has rejected the wisdom of God. And our culture loves death. We love death. We live in a suicidal culture. That's why we abort a million babies a year. Because we love death. That's why you see so much violence, so much school shooting, so many people entertained by simulated violence, so much so that we don't even notice it anymore, do we? We don't even see it when it's around us. So much music that talks about imagined violence that's just a part of our culture. We have rejected wisdom and we love death. We are human beings created by God in the reality that God has made. But our sin is that we resent God for making us. Because if God made us, we didn't get to make ourselves. We resent God for making us. Because if God has made us, we did not get to make ourselves. And we're bound and determined that we are going to make ourselves and so we hate life. 
We hate the life God has given us. We hate the lives other people have. It's the only explanation for why there's so much death and so much carnage and why we are swimming in it. It's the only explanation for abortion. It's the only explanation for the rapid growth of the LGBTQEIEIO movement that says, let's put people together in romantic relationships that will never produce life. They will never produce life because we love death. It's why in Canada, there's a great push, and it's coming here, for doctor-assisted suicides. Some of you may have even heard the news story. I'm not sure if it was in Sweden or where it was, but a British citizen, a young lady who had chronic fatigue syndrome, had that government pay for her suicide because she was deemed to be mentally ill and made the decision out of that mental illness that her life was not living, and the government said, we'll finance that. The West, our culture in the West, loves death. But... We're all good, right? Look, we ain't going to kill nobody. Right? I mean, we're, let's just serious. Let's just go home. Right? Thou shalt not kill. We got it. And all that political stuff, we're on, we think we're on the right side of that. So we should be in the clear, right? Well, to understand this commandment well, you have to move beyond Exodus chapter 20, and you have to hear what Jesus said about it. And that's where we get in the second part of the message today, where we talk about the problem in this command. Thou shalt not kill. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In fact, it would do you good probably just to go ahead and turn there. We're going we're to be there this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Verse number 21. We've got it on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 21. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Well, yeah, we just heard Brother Jesse say that. He's been yelling at us about that for the last 20 minutes. You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think it's pretty obvious in these verses that Jesus is concerned more about who we might kill with our heart than who we might kill with our hands. Jesus is more concerned about who you will kill in your heart, not who you will kill in your hands. So do you have deep in your heart right now a little hitman who has his crosshairs on the people in your life? Say, oh no, Brother Jesse. I'm just angry. I would never want to kill them. Or even worse, we're Christians. We don't get angry. We just get frustrated. 
No, I would never, ever want to kill them. Oh, I know. I know you don't want them dead. You just don't want to ever hear them speak again. You just don't want to ever look at them again. You just don't want them in your world anymore. You just want to cut them off forever. And maybe secretly you wish some bad stuff would happen to them so they would feel as bad as you do. You just don't want them in your life. You don't want them dead. You just don't want to have to live with them. Jesus says that's murder. It's murder. And I know these words hit very, very close to home to me. Not that I would ever be angry. But sometimes... And Jesus says here that anger is akin to murder. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives us this admonition, be angry and do not sin. Not all anger is a sin. The problem we have is that we don't know the difference. But not all anger is a sin. But he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The Apostle Paul warns you and says that if your anger is not handled quickly and if your anger is not handled correctly, then anger can be a back door that Satan can use to slip into your heart and into your life and do his work. As he allows your anger to fester, as he allows your anger to grow, as he allows your anger to calcify your heart towards other people and towards the work of the Lord, the devil who wants to kill, steal, and destroy, he can work through your anger that you feel justified in having. And he can destroy you through anger. I remember years ago in the first church that I pastored, I pastored a brother there named David. And David was a good brother. He loved me, loved our family, loved the church, was faithful in so many ways. Um, he worked a whole lot harder there than I did. But David was an older guy, and he's still alive, but he's an older guy. And, and he was drafted into the army during the time of the Vietnam conflict. Now, David did not go to Vietnam. David was stationed in South Korea. But he told this story about being in boot camp. And while he was in basic training, he says that the day finally came when it was hand grenade day. And some of you remember that from your own experience probably, but it was hand grenade day in the army. And he's in this kind of uh, pit, basically, this bunker, sandbags all around them, a concrete wall in front of them. And he's down there with the drill instructor. And the drill instructor says, okay, McCurry. And he gets in his face and he makes sure he understands. Pull the pin. Drop the pin. Throw the grenade. Pull the pin. Drop the pin. Throw the grenade. Pull the pin. Drop the pin. Throw the grenade. Now the thing about David McCurry is, I shouldn't use his last name. <laughs> David McCurry is a country guy from Rutherford County, North Carolina. He's Barney Fife, man. He just is. And when that drill instructor said, pull the pin, drop the pin, throw the grenade, you know what Private McCurry did? Pull the pin, drop the grenade, throw the pin. <laughs> and he and the drill instructor realized what, what happened instantly, and so thankfully they lived to tell the story. But I fear today that some of you, maybe many of you, are juggling something much, much more dangerous than a live hand grenade. As you're juggling anger, that is explosive, and that is deadly, as it can choke away your spiritual vitality. That's what Jesus is warning about in this passage of Scripture. The same God who cares about human life, cares about your life, and says, I do not want you to live in this kind of anger. 
Say, oh, no, Brother Jesse, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm not angry. If you look in those texts, can we get Matthew 5 back on the screen, Christy? If you have it still in front of you in your Bible, you will notice Jesus says in verse 22 that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to his judgment. Now notice this. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see what Jesus says? Jesus says the quickest way to tell if you are angry is in the way that you talk to people. Insults. Harsh language. Yes, angry people yell. Yes, angry people cuss. But angry people also demean. Angry people also belittle. Angry people also make people feel small. Angry people also run away. Church, running away from conflict and running away from anger is not showing Christian forgiveness. That's not the kind of reconciliation that Jesus taught us. Running away from anger and running away from pain and running away from broken relationships and running away from hurt feelings is a passive-aggressive way to maintain control. It is a way for you to empower your flesh so that you are still in charge and so that you are still safe. I'm saying this to you today because from my heart, Sharon Heights, the five and a half years that I've been your pastor, I have never seen more anger. I've never seen more bitterness. I've never seen people more quick to mistreat one another, to talk poorly to one another, to talk about one another, to engage in turf wars and on and on and on in any church in any professional environment I've been a part of, in any sports team I've ever played with, in any social setting, I've never seen it anywhere like it is here. You are angry. And you don't see how the devil has latched onto your anger and created an opportunity to divide, to destroy, and to kill. Because here's the problem with anger. Well, it feels good, don't it? And our anger is so destructive because it's deceptive. It blinds us to its own reality. In other words, what anger does for you is anger means you can no longer tell the difference between Goliath and Uriah. Goliath needed to die. Uriah deserved to live. But deception and confusion makes us think everybody is a Goliath. An enemy that needs to be isolated, decapitated, and destroyed. Maybe that means that was a good point. I don't know. Um, or maybe the roast is done. James asks in James chapter 4, I don't have these verses today. James asks, From whence cometh? Where, where does fighting, quarreling, and division come from? He says it's because you desire and you do not have. Because of things you want. Things you want. You want what somebody else has. And you, you can see that. You hear that. Story all the time, right? True crime TV shows somebody else has, you know, a woman. Man B has a woman that man A wants, and so man A kills man B to get woman C, right? We know that story. But here's how that happens in a church. In a church that has often confused being busy with being faithful. That is often confused having a position or a title with being important. 
we covet what other people have and what other people are. And so we set our sights on them to take that from them for ourselves, to take their reputation, to take their importance, to take their value, to take their sense of spirituality so that we can have it. And if we can't do that, if we can't take it from them, we'll talk about them. We'll be ugly to them. We'll engage in social media subterfuge because we're angry. We're angry. How can anger be fixed? Anger is always related to what you desire. The only way you can fix your anger is to desire something better. That's it. To desire something that can't be taken away from you. To desire something that can't be threatened. To desire something that can't be lost. And as the people of God, what is that supposed to be? God knows it's not supposed to be my position at the church. God forbid it would ever be my reputation as a pastor. It would ever be what people think about me as a spiritual person. Well, the thing I'm supposed to desire is Jesus. Because here's the wonder of all of this. The wonder of all of this is that the same God who said, Thou shalt not kill, turned himself over to the killers. And said, Power is not in control. Power is not in violence. Power is in forgiveness. Power is in grace. Power is in flipping all of those old values of the world and our flesh on their heads and embarrassing them to say that this is how God operates in the world. God operates on the basis of giving life. And what that means for you today as a child of God, it means that Jesus wants you to lay your anger down. He does not want you simmering in that and stewing in that. He does not want it tearing apart your heart, robbing you of your joy, killing your ability to worship. God wants to save you from that. The sins that other people have committed against you that made you angry, those are the sins Jesus died for. For them. Saying to them and to you, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the anger that's welled up inside of you that's caused you to mistreat other people and be cruel to other people, that's the sin that Jesus died for. And so that when you realize that, what are you going to be angry about? I would ask you today, church family, what the Lord asked the prophet Jonah in Jonah 4. You remember the story of Jonah? We remember Jonah ran from the Lord. He gets swallowed up by a big fish and he gets out and goes to preach to Nineveh. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they have this incredible response to Jonah's preaching that the king issues a decree by fiat. He says, all right, everybody's getting saved now. Even the animals repent. Even the animals get born again. And Jonah's mad about it. He hated those people. He didn't want God to save them. He wanted God to destroy them. I know there's nobody you're praying for God to smite, but Jonah was. And when it didn't happen, Jonah goes outside the city of Nineveh and he sits under a gourd. And he pouts. Probably said a few things that weren't very prophetic. And then the Lord caused the sun to come up and withered up his gourd. The only thing he had in this world was this gourd tree or vine or whatever. And now God's taken that from him. It's a caterpillar, right? The caterpillar ate it. And I pray God sends you all some caterpillars. It'll do you good to have some of your gourds shoot up. And then he's really pouting because the sun's beating down on his head. It's hot. 
God didn't nuke his enemies. Nothing's gone Jonah's way. God asks him, Do you well to be angry? Jonah, is this anger doing you any good? Of course, Jonah, being a sinner and being stubborn, says, Of course I do well. This feels great. Do you well to be angry? Sharon Heights Baptist Church, do you well to be angry? Does it do well for us to engage in a constant monthly fight about who has a key to what? And on what wall we're going to hang them up? And which classroom is going to be where? Does that do us well? Do you well to be angry? When people around you are dying and going to hell without Jesus. And families are torn apart by addiction. Marriages are, are falling apart and we're fighting about puppets. Do you well to be angry? I can tell you this, it doesn't do me any good to be angry. It doesn't do anybody else any good for me to be angry. James chapter 1 verse 19 tells us that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I'll never produce anything godly out of my anger. Never. Never produce anything eternal. Never produce anything lasting. And so I'll just, I'll just tell you today, there's nothing that I can do as your pastor to help you get past your anger. It has to be a work of God in you. And it's not going to happen until you humble yourself. Until you repent. Until you own it and you claim it and you drag it into the light and you confess it and forsake it. The only thing I know to do is pray. And so what we're going to do this evening is we're going to come and pray about this. Now I know that there is a, a kind of significant football game on television tonight. I'm going to tell you who's going to win that game. The team that's going to make the NFL the most money. That's the team who's going to win that game. You're not... You're not watching a sports game tonight. You're watching a television show. All right, and T-Swift's making the Chiefs and the NFL a lot of money. And if they can make more money with them winning, they'll win. And if they can make more money by Brock Purdy and the 49ers winning, then the 49ers are going to win. And so I'm going to invite you to come back to church tonight, yes, on Super Bowl Sunday. In a time of prayer for your church, saying, God help us. Because we do not do well to be angry. Now, we're going to have an altar call today, but I can about prophetically predict how this is going to go. I'm going to stand up here as we sing one verse, and I'm going to look kind of awkwardly at y'all. Y'all are going to not make eye contact with me. Because we, we don't want anybody to know we're angry. I know. We would much rather hide it from God and just blast it off in the hallway out here than being honest and telling God what He already knows about us. If you want to move past it, you need to be honest and you need to bring it to God and confess it. If you want to really move past anger, then you need to ask God to help you obey. Some of you have real hurt in your life, real trauma from people that abused you or raised you or maybe didn't raise you or whatever. You're angry about it. Maybe you're right to be angry, but that anger is festered in you. God commands you to forgive. 
what you need the Spirit's help in today, you need God's help to empower you to feel what you know you ought to obey. God, I want to forgive. Help me to feel it in my heart as I try and do it the best I can. Third, you need to go to people that have wronged you. You need to go to people you've wronged. I do not know how the Word of God could be any more clear about that. I know that when God saves a passive-aggressive person, He makes them a Southern Baptist. I understand that. But the Word of God says, the Word of God says, if your brother's wronged you, go to them and forgive them. Try to reconcile your brother. Why? Because that relationship's more important than our hurt feelings. The Bible says there in Matthew chapter number 5 that if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, oh, somebody has something against me. Don't make a hypocritical show of coming up in the choir or teaching your class so that people think you're spiritual. Go to the person. Say, I'm wrong. Forgive me. Make the phone call. Start the conversation. Follow Jesus. And he will help you along the way. And for what it's worth, don't murder anybody either. Let's stand together today as we prepare for our invitation. Say, Brother Jesse, if I come forward this morning, everybody will know I'm angry. You probably don't hide it as well as you think you do. I bet they know. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy in this moment. We need it to respond to your word. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers. Let your spirit hover over us now as he hovered over the creation. And make us a new people as you made a new world. Free from bitterness, clamor, malice, jealousy, envy. All the things Jesus died to save us from. Do your work now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.